Hello, and welcome to the AAMFT Podcast, your all-access pass to the latest news developments and thought leaders in the world of systemic therapy. We strive to relate, educate, and innovate one episode at a time. I'm your host, Dr. Eli Karam, and we're brought to you by the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. Our podcast explores topics that relationship-based therapists care about. In addition to featuring unique conversations and interviews with established experts, our show provides information and education on direct practice and emerging trends in the MFT profession. For more information, please visit us at aamft.org. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Today on the AAMFT podcast, we are talking about a family-based treatment for eating disorders. You know, working with family systems and adolescents, understanding eating disorders and their effect not only on the individual, the family is important for every systemic therapist. Family-based treatment, what we'll call FBT today, also sometimes referred to as the Maudsley method, is a leading treatment for adolescent eating disorders, including anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, and other specified feeding or eating disorders known as OSFED in the DSM-5. FBT is a manualized treatment delivered by trained professionals, primarily delivered in outpatient settings, although there are some residential and partial hospitalization programs that incorporate it. FBT represents a radical departure from more traditional treatments. Older theories about eating disorders ascribe their onset to family enmeshment or other dysfunction within the family. Mothers, we were believed to be the primary cause of eating disorders. As, as we have learned in our field, mother bashing, pathologizing females was common not just for eating disorders, but for other disorders as well. We know that's not the case anymore. And the typical treatment historically instructed parents to step aside and turn their children with anorexia over to individual treatment or residential treatment centers. That's an approach we now know, in many cases, detrimental to both families and the identified patient. So today we're going to learn all about family-based treatment with an expert, Renee Renicky. Dr. Renee Renicky is a clinical psychologist and the director of research for Eating Recovery Center and the Pathlight Mood and Anxiety Centers. She's also an adjunct associate professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Northwestern University. After earning her bachelor's degree at the University of Michigan, Dr. Renicky received her PhD from Northwestern University and completed her clinical psychology internship and postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Chicago. Renee has an extensive experience building and directing treatment programs including the University of Michigan's Comprehensive Eating Disorders Program and the Medical University of South Carolina's Eating Disorders Program. Dr. Renicky is a fellow of the Academy for Eating Disorders, a member of the Eating Disorders Research Society, and a faculty member of the Training Institute for Child and Adolescent Eating Disorders, where she provides consultations to therapists interested in becoming certified to conduct family-based treatment for eating disorders, her research interests, as she'll also mention today, include the role of expressed emotion in treatment outcome for adolescent anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa. I learned a ton, and we will be back after the interview. Eli, back with you on the AAMFT podcast, and today we are talking about a topic that I have gotten many requests for, and now in our fourth season, 
we are finally tackling, and that is eating disorders and working with family-based treatment of eating disorders. And eating disorders have a long history in the field of systemic therapy, but the way and the gold standard for treating them is very different than how MFTs used to think about this. So today I'm being joined by an expert in this area, Renee Renicky, Dr. Renee Renicky, clinical psychologist. And as I was doing my research for this show, I was looking through doing my lit review and looking through articles that both summarize the literature and current books out. And I saw Renee's name. And then I, as a 21-year-old research assistant at Northwestern University, remember Renee as a doctoral student who had an interest in this many years ago when we were much younger. So it is really awesome to have her as a leading national expert on the show. So the story, because I don't really know this, how did you get interested? We always like to know about our expert is the first question. How do you get interested in working with eating disorders as you have both a research interest and a clinical interest? How, how did that start? The personal interest really started when I was in, when hi, in high school. I had several friends who suffered from eating disorders, and I was really struck by, I guess, one, the, the lack of good treatment resources for them and two the fact that people really didn't take them very seriously I thought and so I think that started my my clinical interest in it was wanting to learn more about it and be able to learn about evidence-based treatments which back then there really weren't too many of and and be able to find a way to to help people more effectively but also to be able to contribute to research and, and tear down some of that misinformation about you know ideas that these are disorders of vanity or people are doing this on purpose and they could just start eating if they wanted to. I felt like those were important things that that need to be put to rest and unfortunately still need to be put to rest. I mean, I remember you being interested in this uh, very early on. If you had to summarize for our listeners your your clinical interest, but also your research interest in working with eating disorders, where does that fit in? Yeah, so I actually started doing research when I was a sophomore at University of Michigan in eating disorders, and then continued that at, during my grad work at Northwestern. And then my uh, postdoc training and early faculty work at University of Chicago uh, with Daniel LaGrange. And I would say that the majority of my research in eating disorders has been on expressed emotion in eating disorders, which I'm happy to to explain a little bit more, and on family-based treatment. Those are are sort of the two main areas that I focused on. We're going to definitely cover both of those today, but let's first, let's orient our listeners because a lot of our audience, which is clinicians, systemic therapists, they are working with family systems where maybe one or multiple members are suffering from some type of eating disorder or at least a problematic relationship with food. So let's or in our listeners as far as what are the most common eating disorders in terms of prevalence right now? The DSM-5 has three sort of main eating disorders, anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, and binge eating disorder. And for most of the prevalence studies that you look at, binge eating disorder tends to be the most prevalent, followed by bulimia nervosa and then anorexia nervosa. But there's actually sort of residual category called other specified feeding or eating disorder, 
we call OSFED. And that is a category for clinically significant problems with eating and, and food and shape and weight that don't meet criteria for one of the other three disorders. And OSFED is actually the most prevalent um, diagnostic category for eating disorders. There's a few different presentations. It's a pretty heterogeneous group, I would say, but a couple examples are what we call atypical anorexia nervosa. So this is when someone meets most of the criteria for eating for anorexia nervosa, but their weight is not low. We see this sometimes with people who have maybe a higher than average premorbid weight, and then they lose a bunch of weight, and maybe their body mass index is you know in the average uh, in an average range, but their bodies and their minds react as if they have a more typical presentation of anorexia nervosa. So that's one example of all the all the criteria being met except the weight is in an average place. It could also be someone who does not meet the frequency or duration criteria for bulimia nervosa. So someone who maybe is binging and purging you know, once or twice a month and may have some, you know, body image issues and things like that. They're still engaging in some disordered eating, but not to the frequency that is required by the DSM-5. So those are a couple examples, but it's, again, it's a pretty varied presentation. Also, the gender breakdown as far as who is affected by eating disorders. Pretty much like nine or 10 to one females to males, except for binge eating disorder. The gender ratio seems to be a little bit more even for that group. But anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa are still primarily female dominated illnesses, especially among when you look at adult clinical populations. It's a little bit more even for adolescents. Family therapists, uh, systemic thinkers are certainly aware of how expressed emotion affects family communication and affects a lot of things in interpersonal relationships. But as far as affecting problematic eating, how does expressed emotion work in that way? Sure. So expressed emotion is, just as as sort of a reminder, consists of five different components. So there's critical comments, hostility, emotional over-involvement, warmth, and positive remarks. And these have generally been studied from parents or a caregiver toward their ill adult or adolescent child, um, whether they have a physical illness or a mental illness. And expressed emotion has been shown across a number of disorders to predict poor treatment outcome, relapse, treatment dropout. So for eating disorders, what we found is that a few different things. One is that it does predict treatment dropout. So kids, adolescents with eating disorders who have high expressed emotion parents are more likely to drop out of treatment. Kids who have highly critical parents, if we're talking about family-based treatments, they tend to do better in separated family therapy as opposed to conjoint family therapy where the whole family is seen together with the therapist. So one way that it, it, that it, it tends to play out in eating disorders is, I think, a lack of of education for parents about eating disorders. So before parents really get into treatment and, and learn about eating disorders and maybe do some of the research on their own, they're often pretty baffled by their kid's behavior. You know, it's very frustrating to watch your child refuse to eat enough and sort of, you know, start wasting away. I think parents get anxious, they can get angry, they can get critical. 
before they understand what they're really up against and what they're dealing with as far as the eating disorder goes, those sort of behaviors and those sort of comments and those sort of views about eating disorders can really lead to poor outcome in treatment. And a lot of the the research on expressed emotion eating disorders has specifically been in family-based treatment. When we think about family-based treatment in the literature abbreviated FBT, you also see that is associated with the Maudsley method. Now, I imagine many of our listeners have never heard of that. So let's talk about the characteristics of family-based treatment for eating disorders and then the different phases of the Maudsley method. Yeah, FBT, I think, was was originally called the, the Maudsley Method. It was it has its origins at the Maudsley Hospital in London. But since then, it has come to be called family-based treatment, or FBT, as you said. So the FBT is now considered the, the leading evidence-based treatment for adolescents with eating disorders. Most of the research has been on anorexia, but there's some evidence that it's effective for adolescents with bulimia too, and also some evidence that it's effective for young adults with anorexia. The first phase of treatment is when parents are really given responsibility over helping their child get better. When we're talking specifically in the context of anorexia nervosa, anorexia nervosa is, is a very egocentric illness, right, as opposed to egodystonic. So people with anorexia, part of them wants that disorder. They don't want to let go of it. But anorexia is a potentially fatal disorder as well. Until recently, it had the highest mortality rate of any psychiatric illness. Now I believe it's it's tied with opioid use disorder. So you have a disorder that someone doesn't really want to let go of, but could also kill them, which is a really bad combination. And so, they don't see it as a problem because it's egocentric. Everybody else sees it as a problem except for the identified patient. So it, it, that's part of what makes anorexia pretty challenging to treat. And so because of that, we can't leave the responsibility for recovery in their hands. We need to take it away from them. How aging disorders used to be treated was that kids would be sent away to hospitals or residential centers, and parents would really not be involved in treatment at all. So the, the treatment team at the hospital would decide what the kid was going to eat, how much, when, they would monitor meals and snacks, they would curtail physical activity. That model works sort of in the short term. The problem is that a lot of these kids with no parental involvement in treatment, a lot of these kids would come home, their parents didn't know what to do to help them continue their recovery, they would lose weight and have to go to the hospital and it would turn into this revolving door sort of thing. So what we wanna do is, is take that model, that hospital model and apply it to the home environment with the kids support system all around them in their, you know, with their sort of day-to-day routines and environments and things like that. So what FBT does is it takes that inpatient model and gives it to the parent and says, you are your child's best resource for recovery. Nobody is as invested in your child's recovery as you are. No one knows them better than you do. No one loves them more than you do. And that is what phase one looks like, is the parents are given all responsibility for what their child eats until the eating disorder starts to loosen its grip a little bit and their thinking isn't so clouded by the eating disorder. And at that point, with some weight on them and with their cognitions getting a little bit better and less influenced by the eating disorder, you can start to move into phase two where responsibility over eating is gradually given back to the adolescent to whatever extent is a sort of age appropriate. So phase two would look very different from phase one for an 18 year old, maybe not super different from phase one for an 11 year old who really doesn't have that much control over their 
they're eating anyway. And then in phase three, there's a review of adolescent development and, and sort of looking back at how the eating disorder tends to throw kids off track developmentally. And then where are they now that the eating disorder has receded? And how can we help them move forward with healthy adolescent development without reverting back to the eating disorder to manage any developmental challenges that might be coming up ahead of them? So I imagine a parent may not start this way, and certainly the teen or adolescent, the idea of doing intensive treatment, like you said, they would probably reject. So do you find that this family-based treatment for eating disorders, it starts after other things have failed? What is the most common way to entry? Like maybe you're doing just some general therapy for the teenager first, or maybe you try then a inpatient facility, what is the most likely pathway to doing this family-based treatment? You know, I would say it, it varies quite a bit depending on the kid's background. Unfortunately, trained FBT therapists are still few and far between, so a lot of people don't have access to FBT, but I would say that the ideal path would be starting with FBT before doing anything else. Even inpatient, you know, other outpatient treatments, again, FBT has the most evidence for its use. So if kids can get early effective intervention, that's ideal. I think speaking to what to what you said about like resistance and kids not wanting to be involved in FBT, I think that's the norm. That's the, the rule rather than the exception. Um, and, and that can, can make treatment challenging too, but I think we always want to remember that what we're doing, even though the, the patient doesn't like it and will fight it, sometimes significant resistance to the treatment approach, you know, the FBT therapist and the parents remember that what they're doing is potentially saving their child's life. Even if the kid doesn't like it, we're going to help them get better even if they don't want to, until they do want to. I think that motivation to get better tends to follow physical recovery. So what FBT does is focuses on the physical recovery right off the bat to minimize any long-term damage that the eating disorder is doing to them. And then once the child is is physically healthy again, then the, the emotional and the psychological and the mental health follows. And that's when you start to see some motivation to want to get better. But we don't start off with that motivation there. We don't expect it to be there. And again, that's what's nice about FBT is we can't afford to wait for the motivation because it just doesn't happen until they start to get better. So we're going to focus on helping them get better first until they really want. So before I can even get the parents involved, I need to get the young person back to a healthy weight and some medically supervised environment. So are they doing that in a hospital or a psychiatric setting? Where does that first phase usually happen when the person is not even healthy enough yet to, to physically feel better? Yeah, so the, the patient has to be at least medically stable for outpatient treatment, which sort of generally, I mean, their heart rate has to be high enough. Guideline is they have to be at least 75% of their expected body weight to be able to engage in outpatient treatment. So even if they're pretty low weight, you can do this on an outpatient basis, but it's really important to have a very close collaboration with a physician who's experienced with eating disorders so they can keep an eye on things medically and make sure that the patient stays safe while they're in phase one of FBT. So it's obviously empirically supported manualized treatment. What does the research say about FBT, especially for anorexia? So it says that it is 
as or more effective than any other treatment that it's it's been compared to, I would say, for the most part. For anorexia, what's interesting is that you know, FBT was, of course, a, a very behavioral approach to treating the eating disorder. There's a lot of ideas out there about anorexia that say there's some sort of deep-seated underlying psychological issues that need to be addressed before someone can recover from an eating disorder. FBT has been compared to more psychologically focused treatments that do exactly that, and FBT has been shown to work better. So this idea that there's you know, these underlying psychological issues that need to be addressed isn't really being borne out by the research. I think what happens a lot of times is that kids maybe purposely start down the road to an eating disorder by saying, I want to lose a little bit of weight, I want to be a little bit healthier, I want to exercise a little bit more. But what they don't mean to do is develop an eating disorder. And once they cross that line, they need help getting back over it. And that's what FBT does so well. So another thing I like about FBT is that it doesn't pathologize the child and say, you know, you have these deep-seated underlying issues that we need to address to help you get better. It just says, you need help getting back over this line. You can't do it on your own. So the therapist and your parents and your treatment team are going to help you do this. There's studies looking at uh, FBT compared to CBT for bulimia and Generally, what we see is that FBT tends to work faster. There's also offshoot almost of of FBT called parent-focused therapy for adolescent anorexia, where the therapist just meets with the parents. The patient is weighed separately by a nurse, and other than the very beginning of the treatment, the therapist doesn't work with the patient at all. And that was actually, at least at the end of treatment in the first follow-up, I believe, shown to be more effective than FBT. I think at the the second follow-up time period, they evened out, and they were both sort of as effective as the other. But not working with the kid at all seems to work just as well. Is, is sort of regular FBT. There's UK guidelines. The National Institute for Clinical Excellence now recommends FBT as, as the first-line treatment for adolescents with, with eating disorders. So there's continually growing evidence for its effectiveness for kids with eating disorders. And now there's starting to be a little bit more research on FBT sort of adapted for treatment non-responders. Even though FBT is the best treatment that we have currently for this age group in this diagnosis, there's still about you know maybe 50% who don't reach full remission. So there's definitely room for improvement. And now there are people who are looking at how to adapt FBT for people who don't respond. Now, the therapist's role in FBT. So I've heard it's a more of a non-Ethorian therapeutic stance when it comes to working with the family. Explain the logic behind that. The therapist is is active and provides a lot of guidance and a lot of psychoeducation, but generally the therapist does not tell the parents exactly what to do. Or rather they say, okay, it's your job to, to weight restore your child, but it's up to the parents to figure out what the details are going to look like for that. And I think there are a couple reasons why it's an important approach or stance to take an FBT. One is that there's no one-size-fits-all approach in FBT. You know, every family is different. The therapist doesn't know all the families you know, likes and dislikes and habits and routines and preferences and cultural and ethnic and religious background and and all the things that can influence eating behavior. So I think the therapist truly has to believe that given the right guidance, the family can come up with a solution that is going to work better for them than anything that the therapist can recommend or prescribe. I think 
Another reason for taking this non-authoritarian therapeutic stance is that it can help parents have a lot of confidence. Parental confidence during the FBT process is very, very important. And if the therapist said to them, like, I'm going to tell you exactly what to do. You just do what I tell you. I think it really undermines this idea that parents know best and know how to feed their kid and, and know what to do to help them get better. There's something to be said for parents kind of struggling through this process and figuring it out themselves that instills a lot of confidence in their ability to do this rather than feeling like they have to run to the therapist or the rest of the treatment team every time they have a question. When I first started doing FBT at University of Chicago, it wasn't unusual to get some frantic phone calls from parents at the beginning of treatment. I, I would get a message from a family being like, oh, she doesn't want to eat. I don't know what to do. Call me back. And a lot of times, just because of my you know very busy schedule, I couldn't call them back immediately. And what I ended up noticing was that if I had to wait for a little bit, by the time I got back to them, they had figured it out. And I thought, you know, that's probably going to do a lot more for their sense of you know self-esteem and confidence in this process than me, you know, quote unquote, coming to the rescue and telling them what to do. So I, I think there's something to be said for parents struggling through the process and figuring it out themselves that really boost their their confidence and their self-esteem in this process. So if I have a parent that has a high level of expressed emotion and negativity and criticalness, how does that impact their participation in FBT? Do we does it work better for some types of parents, parents than, others? than others? I would say criticism across the board is is really damaging for kids and I, I think that the first thing we'll try to do is just address it with like psychoeducation. And so helping parents understand, you know, your child is not, this is where one of the components of FBT called like externalization of the illness comes in really, really handy. And is a really important part of FBT is we really emphasize to parents, this eating disorder is not your child. It's not the same thing. So when your son or daughter is sitting there swearing at you or screaming or throwing food because they don't want to eat, that's not them trying to be difficult. It's not them trying to, you know, get attention it's not them trying to to do anything except avoid eating because they're scared because that is sort of you know the hallmark of anorexia nervosa is a fear of weight gain so helping parents understand they're not fighting their child they're fighting the eating disorder and just like their child didn't choose to develop the eating disorder they can't just choose to get better without help so i think once parents understand really truly understand what their child is going through that goes a long way in reducing parental criticism so the first thing you try to do is, is directly address the criticism if if those sort of approaches don't work then sometimes i'll actually talk about the research with families and say look if we can't get a handle on this critical side it doesn't bode well for treatment you know it's not going to help your child get better there's a lot of research now supporting this let's look more at what is behind the criticism, what's driving it, and see if there's something we can do about it. Then the sort of last resort, I guess, would be, as I mentioned earlier, separating and doing separated family therapy. So in separated family therapy, the therapist would meet first with the parents and then later with the patient instead of seeing the whole family together. And we know um, there's been research by Yvonne Eisler showing that, that that approach works better if the family is, is highly critical. So first we try to address it and, and fix the criticism, but if we can't, then we'll separate out the family and treatment. I'm sure there's also a lot of psychoeducation about a healthy relationship with food and how to convey that 
in these modules, what do you think is the biggest difference as far as those that respond well and are able to maintain the gains versus those that slip back as far as what we know from the research. The great thing about FBT is that relapse rates are actually really low. So if you get better with FBT, you tend to stay better. There was a long-term study that, that Daniel LaGrange and colleagues did following up people from um, a randomized control trial that was published in 2010, follow them up four years later, I believe, and out of the FBT group of like 60-something, I think only, I think the number who relapsed was four. So the rates are, are really quite low, and it's a good thing, but I guess one of the problems, <laughs> so to speak, with such low relapse rates is that we can't really study like what's behind that, and then sort of the numbers are too low to statistically sort of figure out what's driving those low rates of relapse. My hunch is that it has everything to do with the parental involvement. So I think one thing that can lead to low relapse rates in FBT is that, one, the, the parents get to know the eating disorder very, very well. So if signs and symptoms do start to rear their head again after they've been in treatment, the parents can catch it immediately and say, ooh, that looks problematic. So they won't let it go for very long. The second thing is that parents know what to do about it. So they don't forget or lose the skills that they learned in FBT. So parents can catch something early, say, that looks problematic. Let's figure out what we're going to do about it. You know, Do we need to go back to phase one and, and maybe start managing her food for a little bit until we kind of nip this in the bud? Whatever it is, I think that parents' knowledge of the eating disorder of the treatment process go a long way towards reducing relapse. I think also sort of the demographic that's mostly been studied in FBT studies is that these are fairly young kids with an age of onset in their teens and a fairly short duration of illness. So most of these kids have had a, have been sick for three years or less. That's a good thing because eating disorders I think maybe particularly anorexia, get harder to treat as time goes on. So I think we're also dealing with kids who haven't been sick for 20 years. Once someone has had an eating disorder for 20 years, the chances of recovery get much, much harder. The takeaway is get them in early. Also, I imagine from a cost-effective standpoint versus uh, extensive hospitalization or residential stay, this is probably a more cost-effective alternative to FBT. Absolutely. Yep. So yeah, definitely the take-home is like early, effective, evidence-based intervention is so important to reduce the chances of, of developing a chronic disorder for which there's very little good treatment. You know, just making sure that you're Trying that first, I, I I tend to think that you know inpatient residential stays those should not be the first thing that people try because there are effective, less invasive, less sort of restrictive treatment options that are out there that can be effective. And I think if you try out patient FBT and that doesn't work, then yeah, absolutely, you know residential might be a, a great next alternative. But I think that. You want to start with the least restrictive sort of treatments and then and the move up instead of the other way around. Okay, let's talk about the other end of the spectrum, not anorexia, but binge eating. So this is a young person that cannot control their intake and is FBT as effective with binging disorder or how, what is the gold standard in treating that? Because I think a lot of family therapists see teenagers and or even younger and their parents and they're talking about food and the parent struggles because they're having a hard time regulating the intake. They're eating too much. So it causes lots of problems 
for the parents and for the young person. What should we do when we see someone with potential binge eating issues coming into our office? So there's evidence for FBT for adolescents with bulimia. If you have an adult with bulimia, kind of behavioral therapy is, is really the way to go. If we're thinking about adolescents, there's evidence that FBT works. There's also evidence that kind of behavioral therapy adapted for adolescents works. So you have a couple options. I think in my experience, CBT for adolescents is fine if they are motivated to work on the disorder. If they're not, then I feel like you kind of have to go with FBT because it doesn't rely on adolescent motivation to help them get better. The way that FBT would be adapted a little bit for, for bulimic uh, disorders or bulimic spectrum disorders is that there may not be any focus on weight restoration. A lot of people with bulimia have a weight in the normal range. So the, the evidence or the uh, focus would shift a bit to reducing the binge eating, eliminating eventually the binge eating and purging and establishing a more regular pattern of eating. So what we've found, I think, especially what a lot of the CBT research I think has found is that binge eating happens sometimes because of an irregular irregular pattern of eating. So a lot of times what you see in bulimia is that people want to lose weight. They try to restrict their eating during the day. The end of the day comes around and they're starving because they haven't eaten all day and they end up binging. And then they end up purging to compensate for the binge. If you can just get people in a regular pattern of eating to, to forego the restriction and eat three meals and two snacks a day, that just on its own can eliminate the binge eating and then therefore the purging. So that's really the focuses of, of FBT and, and a lot of CBT too, just establishing a regular pattern of eating. Of eating. If kids do have problems with binging, then it's important to try those binge foods, but in a safe environment. So with parents around, you know, the parents can sort of say, okay, here, honey, you're worried about binging on ice cream. I'm going to give you a bowl of ice cream. You're going to eat that. We're not going to allow you to have more than that. So it's not going to turn into a binge. And we're going to sit with you for an hour after to make sure you don't purge either. So again, a lot of behavioral sort of containment of the eating disorder so that the child can't engage in that in that disordered behavior. And they feel hopefully safe with their parents there that they can try these kind of scary foods and it, and they won't let it get out of hand. We have people that have now listened to this and like you, you were saying earlier that this is a great treatment, but it is still not widely available or there have not been that many therapists trained in FBT. So where do I go if I want more training? And then let's talk about if this is outside the scope of my competence, how do I find to make a quality referral? How, if I'm a therapist and I'm helping a family make a referral, how am I doing that? As far as getting training, there is a process to get certified in family-based treatment. So that involves going to a, a day and a half long workshop covering sort of the basics of FBT and then going through 25 hours of supervision with someone who can train people to, to become certified in FBT. Even if you can't do or afford or put the time in for certification, there are treatment manuals out there written by Daniel LaGrange and Jim Locke for therapists. So there's a treatment manual for for anorexia and a treatment manual for bulimia and both of those can be really helpful for people who are trying to learn this this process whether they go through certification or not for families if you can't find 
So there's a there's a website called Train to Treat for ED, which is basically will list FBT certified therapists. So for families, you can go there and try to find one. Um, if there's nobody in your area or you can't get any you know virtual care, there's a parent handbook written by Daniel and Jim called Help Your Teenager Beat an Eating Disorder, and that can be a great way to to get started. It really outlines the elements of FBT for parents who are who are going through this process. So there are resources out there. If you wanted to try to, to find an FBT therapist, I, though, I would say start with Daniel LaGrange and Jim Locke have a, a training institute called Training Institute for Ch- Children, Child and Adolescent Eating Disorders. That's the sort of umbrella institution that certifies FBT therapists. And on that website is probably the best way to try to find an FBT trained therapist. Again, if you can't find someone in your area, I've heard of a lot of families who will buy the parent handbook and then try to find a therapist who at least has some familiarity with FBT, and even if they can't go through certification, are they willing to learn more and work with the family while they sort of put together this, you know, this FBT treatment team? So finding a therapist who's willing to learn more about it and who's open to trying this form of therapy, and then a physician um, who has some experience with eating disorders and or is open to, to learning more, I think is really important. Those are awesome tips. Do you need, if you're getting this certification, uh, your supervised work, must that be face-to-face? Or Because I think a lot of our listeners, it would be worthwhile to do the training, but the, the supervision of their work in this virtual world that we live in, probably the easiest, the, the easier to do that, the, the more they would take an interest in, in wanting to get certified. Do you know if the supervision has to be done face-to-face or can it be done virtually? It can be done virtually. It's a great question. Yeah. So I've, I've supervised people all over the country. So that can be done virtually. One thing I, I would, I find really helpful um, and can count towards part, a small number of the certification hours, video of a family. So if you can get a family to consent and allow themselves to be videotaped and you can find a safe way to transfer it to your therapist, that's another part of the certification process that I think can be really helpful. Yeah, but the actual supervision, even the the treatment at this point, especially during COVID, doesn't have to be in person. That's a great thing for our audience as MFTs are used to videotaping their work as they move through the licensure process anyway. So yeah, it's a very powerful very powerful tool. Renee, thank you so much. You've given us so much information. The overview article where I rediscovered you, uh, my friend, is uh, in Adolescent Health, Medicine, and Therapeutics from a few years back, Family-Based Treatments of Eating Disorders in Adolescent, Current Insights. And that is an amazing summary. It caught me up very quickly, much of which Renee talked about today. And then your book that came out not that long ago is Eating Disorders and Expressed Emotion, Integrating Treatment Intervention and Positive Family Environment that you edited with Daniel LaGrange. What can uh, the reader expect to find in there? I would say a great overview of all the research on expressed emotion and eating disorders. I think that expressed emotion was originally studied in patients with schizophrenia. I would say the schizophrenia field is is ahead of the eating disorder field when it comes to examinations and understanding of expressed emotion, its role in poor treatment outcome and relapse and and things like that, and in the understanding of, of why and how high expressed emotion leads to these negative outcomes. I think the the schizophrenia field is, is ahead of ours in that regard, but this book 
really highlights everything that we do know about expressed emotion and eating disorders. So there's sections on, you know, expressed emotion and um, just, you know, what is expressed emotion and how does it sort of overall impact eating disorders. There's different chapters on anorexia and bulimia on cultural factors of eating disorders on all sorts of things. So it's, it's a great overview if you're interested in, in this topic at all. Wonderful. I learned so much. If the listeners would like to continue the dialogue with you, Renee, what is the best way to reach you? Oh, yeah, that would be great. I, w- I would welcome any any dialogue or any questions. Probably the best way is my email address, renee.renike, and I'll spell that out. It's R-E-N-E-E dot R-I-E-N-E-C-K-E, renee.renike at E-R-C Pathlight. Eli, back with you, bringing to a close another successful installment of the AAMFT podcast. Renee loves collaboration, she told me. So anybody out there interested in expressed emotion or working with family-based treatment for eating disorders, please drop her a line at that email we mentioned. If you're looking to find more information, please check out the following websites. www.feast.com dash ed.org that's families empowered in supporting treatment of eating disorders there's plenty of information on there support for parents and caregivers helping loved ones recover from eating disorder there's maudsleyparents.org that's m-a-u-d-s-l-e-y-p-a-r-e-n-t-s.org that's the nonprofit volunteer organization of parents who have used this family-based treatment the Maudsley approach to help their children heal from eating disorders. Another good website is www.aedweb.org. That's the Academy for Eating Disorders. It's a professional organization that provides information about eating disorders to the public. Many good videos on there. Click on resources, scroll down for the public, and click on eating disorder videos. AMFT Podcast, bringing you the latest and greatest in all things systemic. Hopefully you learned something today. If you have not listened to us before and you check this out today, Wherever you find your favorite podcasts, whether that be Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, please go and listen to four seasons of the latest and greatest in all things systemic, the movers and the shakers in the field of systemic couple and family therapy. Drop me a line. I'm at Eli at NorthstarCounselingCenter.com. You can also find me at EliCaram.com, E-L-I-K-A-R. AM.com. On Twitter, drop us a line, follow the conversation. The AMFT is at the AMFT. I'm at Dr. Eli Live. We love hearing from you and we really would appreciate a five star review. And that is how we keep rising through the world of mental health podcast and give you, the listener, the news you use as we strive to relate innovate and educate one episode at a time. And until next time, my friends, stay safe, stay systemic.